Well, good afternoon. It's lovely to have you here today. Uh, my name is Matt. If you haven't met me before, I'm on staff here with the Christian Union working with the Student Club to proclaim Jesus on campus. Um, so really excited to have you here. I'm excited to be here. Uh, the Easter public holidays are coming up, which in my mind is very exciting. Two days off. Um, and so because I love hypotheticals, I thought I would begin by asking you a hypothetical. If you could create a public holiday for any purpose, anything that you wanted to celebrate, what would it be? Let that linger in your mind for a moment. Uh, it turns out this hypothetical isn't actually all that hypothetical. Uh, countries around the world create public holidays all the time. Here are some of the fun ones. Uh, America, only in America would you have National Pig Day. Now, I quote uh, from here, the purpose of National Pig Day is to accord the pig its rightful, though generally unrecognised, place as one of man's most intelligent and domesticated animals. <laughs> there you go, public uh, National Pig Day. Um, Turkmenistan, a country which many of you probably haven't had much to do with, has National Melon Day. Uh, again, I quote to you, celebrating the Turkmen melon, um, it has a unique taste reminiscent of the fruit of paradise. Now, if that isn't worth celebrating, I don't know what is. They also have a national carpet day, uh, so it kind of makes you wonder whether their tastes can be trusted. Um, there's plenty of public holidays out there, aren't there? Um, one of my personal favourites, uh, for a variety of reasons, is International Women's Day. Not only because it's such an important day, but because it happens to fall on my dad's birthday. There's a lot of scope to, to, to stuff around with birthday cards and, and have a bit of fun <laughs> on that particular day. What would you have your public holiday about? I imagine that whatever it is that you chose, if you were taking it even marginally serious, like the people who love the pigs in America, you would choose something that's important, wouldn't you? Something worth celebrating, something worth stopping your ordinary day to draw attention to. And I think that if you asked a Christian how they would create a public holiday, what would they create it about? I think that would be really, really boring. Because I think what they would do is not create a new one, but reinvent an old one, and they would choose Easter. You would have seen in the Bible reading, it's there in your outline there, you've actually got a bunch of headings if you want to take notes or follow along, uh, that Paul says in verse 3 that I passed on to you what is of first importance. And for Christians, Easter is of first importance because Easter is about the gospel that Paul preached. And so to understand Easter, you need to understand the gospel. And so to that end, what we're going to do today is it's pretty simple for the next 20 minutes or so. I'm going to outline to you what Christians call the gospel message. Nothing particularly fancy about it. I'm going to tell you what it is, what it means, answer some objections along the way. And then at the end, I'm going to leave you with a challenge, a challenge to respond. Now, because at the Christian Union, we Christians who follow the Lord Jesus don't believe that this is just a mere preference in life that we can follow, but something that is not just information to obtain, but something that should be transformative and transform the way that you live. Because we believe that life is about the Lord Jesus and that he has a claim not just on our own lives as Christians, but on the lives of every human being on the planet. So that's where we're going today. Uh, now you know where we're going. You won't be surprised if we end up in those sorts of places. Uh, so why don't you have a look again at that Bible passage in front of you. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a letter written by the Apostle Paul, uh, probably within 20 years of Jesus' death. Uh, and I want you to observe in verse 1 there, talking to the church in Corinth, the Corinthians, uh, that he wants to remind them of the gospel that he preached to them, the one that they received and on which they have taken their stand. 
And it appears in verse 2 that the reason he's doing that is because this is the gospel that saves them if they holdly firm to it, otherwise their belief is in vain. And then when we get to verse 3, this is where the real substance of the passage kind of comes in for us, because verse 3 starts to describe what this Christian gospel is about. Uh, Have a look there. I'll read the rest of it for you again so we've got it in our heads. He says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, on Jesus' merry tour of revealings, he appeared to me, Paul, also, as to one abnormally born. As you look over that, there's a lot to take in, there's a lot of detail, it's one kind of super long sentence, Uh, but really as you boil it down, it comes down to two key truths. The first one is in verse 3, Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And then the second is in verse 4, that Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And the things that kind of sit in between there, that he was buried, that he appeared, and that long list of appearances, they kind of uh, uh, sit alongside those two key truths as evidences or proofs as to those two key truths and why they're reliable and should be believed. And so everything that the Christian believes boils down to those two things. Jesus was crucified and Jesus was resurrected to life. That's the heart of the Christian message. Let's explain that and unpack that. Let's have a look at the first truth. Uh, Jesus died for our sins in verse 3. And this is what we celebrate on Good Friday, by the way. Uh, It's a Good Friday, strange, given that we're celebrating a death. Perhaps we'll work out why that is the case. Um, But before we get to the death, we need to deal with the sins. So you notice there that it's not just that Jesus died, uh, but he died for something. And in this case, it was for our sins. So the first thing to understand about the Christian gospel is that it is about addressing the problem of sin. Now, sin, it's a dying word in today's world. We have problems. We have mistakes. We have imperfections. We might even go so far as to say that sometimes we're bad. But we aren't sinful. That's a religious term. It's a negative term. It doesn't have a place in our society anymore. It kind of rubs against the grain. It rubs against the grain of a society that says humanity is fundamentally good. But what I want to suggest is all you have to do is look at a child to understand that we're actually all born selfish and not fundamentally good. Uh, And if you've ever had anything to do with children, you'll understand this. You need to teach your children to be selfless, to share to wait. They never go through a class that teaches them to be selfish. Now, one of my favourite stories, maybe it should be a favourite story, but it is, at a church I used to go to, the pastor that was there had a young daughter, she was two years old, and she had done something that was quite surprising. He went up to his ensuite toilet at a certain point and discovered that a bottle of lotion was just filled with water. And so what he's worked out has happened is his two-year-old daughter has snuck into his room, into the ensuite, emptied the bottle of lotion down the drain worked out that, uh uh-oh, shouldn't have done that, filled it up with water, and then put it back on the shelf. Did not need a lesson to teach her to do things that she shouldn't be doing. And as we grow older, that tendency continues and continues. Um, If you're still doubtful, I want to suggest that there's another thing, something that's probably in your pocket, 
that suggests that maybe humanity isn't as good as you first thought it was. It's your phone. What is it about your phone? Have you noticed that there's a lock on your phone? Why is there a lock on your phone? Seems ridiculous, right? Everybody's trustworthy. Everyone's fine. I don't have locks on my house or my car or my laptop or my special treasure box or my diary. The fact that we have locks... I don't have a special treasure box, by the way, okay? <laughs> don't need to worry. I don't lock that. Um, there's nothing special in there. But the thing to understand is that there is something that kind of pervades all of our society that is inherently distrustful of human nature. And you might go, well, hang on, no, that's just to protect our privacy. But yeah, okay, cool, it's just to keep people honest. But, but why is it there? Why is the pool there? I think that if we kind of sat still and tested our own hearts, we would see something loom. We would actually see that for all the good and the loving things that we do do, there is always an inward pull in our relationships, in our behaviours, even in our best ones, that seek to serve ourselves over and above other people. Now, usually people who acknowledge this reality about themselves will kind of say, well, yeah, 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 I get that. I, I do some bad things sometimes. But I'm not as bad as that person. Uh, I actually saw somebody wearing a T-shirt once, uh, walking around that said, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not like you. I thought that was classic, because you know what was awesome about that T-shirt? Every single person wears that T-shirt. You and I. We carry around that kind of judgmentalism that suggests that, yeah, okay, I, I, you can point to things that are wrong with me, but I'm going to point you to somebody who's even worse and deflect the attention off me. But what's really interesting is that as you approach the Bible and you read about that sort of attitude, that comparison is all wrong. Because if you want to understand sin, you don't do it by looking at other people kind of going along horizontally. You don't determine it by comparing yourself to others. Sinfulness is actually determined by comparing yourself to God, the morally perfect, holy, completely pure God. And against that comparison, every single one of us is found wanting. Nobody can claim righteousness. Uh, a few other places in the Bible, in Isaiah chapter 64, uh, we find out that even our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, uh, a dirty rag. Uh, and, and to bring this even closer to home, our sinfulness, first and foremost being against God, well, the God who demands perfection, he demands it not just in our deeds, but in our commitment to him. He is our creator, as our rightful ruler, says to us, his creatures, that we are to live in his world in his way, but we don't. So Romans chapter 3, this one's up on the screen for you, says this. This is God's verdict about humanity. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And the scary thing about this, notice the righteousness language there in verse 10, is that this isn't just like a kind of a, a morally neutral thing. People don't follow God and some people do, or nobody seems here is following God. But that actually comes with a consequence, comes with a punishment. Uh, you might call it unfair, the Bible calls it justice. And what God does in response to those who rebel against him is that he says that he will judge them. One day, at the, the end of history, or the point at which you die, he will call you to account for how you have lived in this life, and he will ask you one simple question, have you lived with me as your God? And this says, nobody will be able to say yes. 
And what that means is that every single person in this room, you, me, in our default state before God, deserve God's punishment and his eternal death because we have offended against the living and eternal God. Now, that's not a comfortable thought, is it? Like, I feel awkward just saying it. You must be awkward feeling it and hearing it. But it needs to be said because if you don't understand your predicament, then you won't understand Jesus' death. If the problem is small, you know, then what happens is then Jesus is small. You know, if Jesus is, you know, if, we, if we're just kind of, oh, we just do some kind of bad things, we just need some moral reformation and everything's all good with, with us and God and, and us and other people, then all Jesus is to us, all Jesus is to the world is just a good guy, he's a moral teacher. Somebody who, you know, martyred for the cause, you know, like Gandhi was, standing up for good principles but was killed by evil people. But if that's the case, then what happens is Christians just become moralizers. It's just about moral improvement. It's about living a good life. And I want to say that if that's the case, then why even bother being a Christian? Why do I need Christianity when I can just, you know, seek to do good to my neighbor and, 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 and do that, that as my, my way of life? I think most people have that attitude. And I think they have that attitude because they don't understand the scope of the problem. Our issue is not some minor wrongs that need righting. Our predicament is far greater, far graver, and far more urgent than any of us could have imagined. But if you understand your sin, then Jesus' death on the cross becomes something entirely different. Because all of a sudden you see it with the purpose that it has. It was a, a death for sins. Christ died for our sins, the first big truth of the passage here. And what we learn as we read through the rest of scriptures is that Jesus is our substitute. He stands in our place and suffers the wrath of God on our behalf, takes the penalty for our sin on the cross so that we don't have to. That's why Christians claim that Jesus and God is a loving God. Because God takes us who are his enemies and he stands in our place and does justice to himself in the person of Jesus so that we can go free. Christians call this grace. It's undeserved. It is a demonstration of the great magnitude of God's love for his creatures, for you and for me. Though he was rightly angry, he sends his son to take your place and offer you forgiveness of sins and freedom from his judgment. That's why we call it Good Friday, because Jesus died for sins. That's the first key truth of the gospel. Second key truth is just as incredible. Uh, this is celebrated on Resurrection Sunday, uh, uh, basically two days after Good Friday, and we see it there in verse 4. We see that Christ was raised from the dead. Crazy, hey? Uh, let me let you on a, a little secret here. If you want to know the Achilles heel of Christianity, uh, don't tell anyone this, okay? I don't know how many people know this. Like, if you set out, you wanted to completely destroy Christianity. Do you know how you would do it? Disprove the resurrection. Because absolutely everything that Christians believe, everything that Christians do, sits on this one claim that Jesus Christ bodily came back from the dead. And if you can turf that, then you've turfed Christianity. And the reason it's so fundamental to the Christian hope is because if God didn't raise Jesus back to life again, 
we would have no way of knowing whether his death actually achieved the thing that Jesus claimed it would in doing away with our sins. And so he would have been just another madman or just another well-meaning martyr in the cause um, of, of justice or whatever it was who just happened to get himself killed. But Christians were a bit more pessimistic about it than this. Uh, a little bit later on in, in 1 Corinthians, so we did the first eight verses. In verse 17, Paul says this, If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And two verses later, verse 19, he says something similar. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, I used to be in a church um, that uh, had a minister who didn't believe the gospel. Uh, it was a crying shame. It was actually really, really sad um, because he rejected what we believed to be of first importance. And he was asked the question once after a church service, um, how would you feel if you, know, you died and then you kind of got to the afterlife, wherever it was, and, and you found out that, that Jesus Christ uh, wasn't real or what he said about himself wasn't true? And he goes, well, I, I'd be okay with that because I lived a good and moral life and that's a wholesome thing to have done. Worst answer ever. The Bible's answer, you suck. You should not have done that. Wasted time. Why bother doing charity? Why bother sacrificing yourself and your needs and your desires for the sake of others? Why bother evangelizing people? Why bother do any of those things? Turn up to Easter services? Waste of time. What are you guys doing here? You're just here for the cross, hot cross buns? Well, maybe that's okay then. But, but if you actually came here to listen to the Bible, oh, pitiful, to be, to be shamed above all other things. That's the attitude that they have if the resurrection wasn't a thing. Because without the resurrection, we have no assurance that God has forgiven our sins. No assurance that the eternal life that God promises those who believe in him is even possible. And yet, if he did raise from the dead, then his resurrection, his life, becomes the guarantee of our own. It tells us that our sins have been dealt with. It tells us that God, having brought Christ back to life... That's the stamp of approval that Christ's sin-killing deed was done. Without it, we don't have hope. But with it, we have the greatest hope. The hope that in the final judgment, our sins will not be held against us. And not only will we avoid God's wrath, but we will receive his blessing. The life that he gave to Christ eternally when he raised him from the dead, we too will have in a world that is perfect, free from pain, free from disease, free from death. It is amazing, the hope that Christians have. But the thing to understand is it's God's wrath or it's God's blessing. And so the stakes are high. And so now it's time to kind of level with you. We've kind of been operating on the assumption that the resurrection yet would happen, great. But I know what we're all thinking here at this point. Because our universal experience says that dead people stay dead. And so when we talk about the resurrection, I think we can't help but be a little sceptical, yeah? And so the question that I want to ask, and the question I want to ask you, is, is there sufficient reason for the resurrection to overturn our reasonable expectation that people don't rise from the dead? Now, I want to say that there is, uh, and there's lots of auxiliary evidences and arguments. You can turn them up on the internet. You can turn them up in good books. If you want a recommendation, uh, come and find me. But the main one that Scripture gives uh, is here in our passage. The reason that it gives for the resurrection is that there were witnesses to the resurrection. Uh, have a look again. Scan your eyes over verses 5 to 8. Uh, we have recorded there 
six separate incidents where the resurrected Jesus was witnessed. They occurred in different places, at different times, with a different number of people, and different kinds of people. And so if you're kind of thinking about it in terms of personal testimony, that's over 500 people at various points in time who have seen a particular thing. Legally, that's pretty tight. Now, let me give you an example. If you were out on the oak lawn, say, actually, no, you can't be on the oak lawn. I won't work for this. You'll understand why in a second. Say you're over there somewhere, not by the oak lawn, and a stranger comes up to you and says, hey, you'll never believe it. There is a gorilla on the oak lawn doing basic math. (laughs) What would you say to that stranger? Yeah, he's having me on. You stay standing there. Another person comes along with their friend and they say to you, you'll never believe it. There is a gorilla on the oak lawn doing basic math. Now, at this point, you're like, okay, either this is a setup, it's all stitched up, or maybe there's a guy in a gorilla suit doing some math out on the oak lawn, or maybe it's just an engineer out on the oak lawn (laughs) doing some maths. There's plenty of explanations. Say that you stayed there and then swarm after swarm, 500 students over the course of 45 minutes come by and say, you will not believe that there is a gorilla on the oak lawn doing basic math. Now, I know you want to go to the oak lawn now and see if there is a gorilla there doing basic math, but you see the point, right? That there's a point at which the, the, the witness testimony becomes so overwhelming that you actually go, you know what? As much as it sounds absolutely ridiculous, there's a gorilla doing his times tables on the oak lawn. But for some reason, when we get to the resurrection and we have that kind of level of evidence, we still want to raise objections. So I just want to knock down some of the quick ones and then leave you with the challenge that the witnesses pose to us. Some people say that they hallucinated. Um, Makes a lot of sense uh, if it was an individual. Uh, But the problem with hallucinations, and anyone studying uh, psychiatry or psychology will know this, hallucinations are private experiences that are only experienced by certain kinds of people who are susceptible to them. And so the fact that Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time rules out that possibility. Hallucinations, that is simply not a group phenomenon. Okay? Uh, okay, the other options. Uh, they, some people say that they made it up, that some sort of conspiracy kind of happened, uh, but again, that becomes increasingly unlikely when you take into account just the sheer amount of people that witnessed it. It's not like two people started it and then they kind of got a whole bunch of conspiracy theorists in on it. Oh, yeah, that sounds right. Let's do that. All of them were kind of there at the base level, not one or two, but 500. Add that to the fact that every apostle, that's what the reference is to the 12 there, bar John, so the 11 of them, were actually murdered, martyred, for not recanting their belief that Jesus had risen from the dead. So I just want to say you have to be absolutely crazy to do that or absolutely convinced that it's true. And the fact that 11 people went to the stake for that kind of suggests that I don't think this is a conspiracy that was, you know, just happened to not be broken open. Leaves you with one other explanation, the one that I can only think of really, um, is that they were somehow tricked or that they were extremely gullible. Now, I don't think you can buy that. Um, I think that uh, the problem with that is that ancient people were just as sceptical as modern people. Uh, We've got to be uh, careful here of falling into the danger of what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, where we just kind of presume that because we're further advanced in history, we know more about life, and so those guys back there, really, really stupid. But it doesn't take long to kind of do the thought experiment and just kind of go, hang on a minute, if we took some guys from the first century and and dropped them into the Facebook conspiracy cycles and, 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 you know, they were like, oh, you mean to say that there are thousands upon thousands of people who believe COVID is not real, and yet I know people who are getting infected and dying? 
yeah, you modern people have got some stuff that are really messed up. Let me take you back to the first century and tell you about death. We know about death. So chronological snobbery, let's be careful that we don't go there. They were just as sceptical. In the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, these are different parts of the New Testament, separate accounts. We have admissions of guilt. Oh, not guilt, sorry, doubt. Uh, there's lots of admissions of guilt too, but doubt is the one I want to focus on. Uh, and especially, you, you may not know him, but you may know the phrase, doubting Thomas. It happens in John chapter 20, uh, and he refuses to believe that Jesus has resurrected from the dead. Um, but eventually when he comes to see him, he falls on his knees and declares, my Lord and my God. And basically what Paul is doing here then, in verses 3 to 8, is he is making an appeal to eyewitness testimony. And you'll notice there too, I think it's at the end of verse 6, that most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, which is his nice way of saying that they've died. So basically what he's saying implicitly to the Corinthians is, by the way, you know how I said the two key truths, Jesus died for our sins and Jesus rose bodily from the dead? You can go and hunt down the people who saw him and ask them for yourself. And his point here, you can just go talk to them. There is no escaping the fact that 500 people, including some of Jesus' best friends, the ones who would have spotted a body, a body double miles away, 500 people who knew him to be dead, remember he was buried, that's one of the auxiliary truths we see in verse 3 there, 500 people or more saw him alive again. And so it seems to me that even on an initial appraisal, the most logical conclusion as far as the witnesses go, is that the resurrection actually happened. And let me tell you, that is good news for us sinners. That's a reason to have a second public holiday in the space of a week. Actually, that's wrong. It's a reason to have a million public holidays in the space of a week, an eternity of life with God, because it means that there is a way of salvation that is open to us in the person and the work of Jesus. So Jesus died for our sins. He was raised by God to new life. That is the Christian gospel. And with the last couple of moments I've got, I want to challenge you. First, I want to outline two responses to the gospel. And I'm going to leave you with two challenges. It's important to understand that as we look at the Christian gospel, there are only really two ways to respond. They're there on your outline. You either receive the gospel or you reject it. In verse 1, we see that the Corinthians have received it. Uh, what does that look like? You kind of do you just get a gift and unwrap it. Well, as we kind of look at the passage, Paul uses words like believe, take your stand on. Uh, and, and what he's getting at here is not just like I'm a mere intellectual agreement. What he's actually talking about is a complete reorientation of your life. Believing in the gospel, receiving the gospel means throwing yourself on the mercy of God in Jesus. It means confessing your sinful rejection of him. It means accepting his forgiveness and then reorienting your life toward the God that you had previously turned away from. So that's the first response, receive. It's the one that Jesus calls us all to do. The second is reject. And I want you to notice here that I have been intentional that there are only two options. There's no middle ground here. Christianity in its call to response is binary because Jesus himself in his call to response was binary. He is the only means of salvation. And so you take him or you leave him. And what that means is that the Christian gospel is of such importance, of first importance, that to sit on the fence is actually a decision against Jesus. Because what it is, is it's accepting the status quo, which is our present rebellion and rejection of God. 
It's a persistence in disobedience and a refusal to turn to God in repentance and receive his blessing. And so if we choose sin, what we end up doing is we choose to remain in death. And it's only in receiving, therefore, and believing in the gospel that we find life. So those are the two responses. Here are my two challenges. Conversion and conversation. I'm going to do them in the reverse order. Uh, Let's start with conversation. Uh, There was a time back in the day where you could have meetings like this and I could get up here and kind of explain what I've just explained to you and then say, cool, you've got enough, let's go. Are you going to be a Christian now or are you going to be a Christian? No. You know, like it was that straightforward. But times have changed. I think in the last 50 years or so, what we would call biblical literacy, kind of a knowledge of Christian things has gone from, you know, moderately high in the average person in society to pretty well zero. And so what that means is, for a lot of you, what I have just said to you in the space of 20 minutes is really, really new, and in some cases really, really confronting. Uh, And I want to say that's okay. It's a lot to process, there's implications to tease out, there's questions to answer. And what we don't want to do at the Christian Union is say, now, come on, let's do this. Hurry up, otherwise out the door. Because we are not about forcing people to do anything. We want you to approach Christianity and understand Jesus with your eyes open with your mind thinking. We want you to see him for who he is and by your free choice embrace him as your Lord and Saviour. What I hope you can see from the passage here is that it is still of first importance, even though there is a call to not just kind of jump in both feet straight away. Christianity has a long pedigree. The Bible is the most sold book in the history of the world. It's also the most shoplifted book in the history of the world. And you know what that tells me? That tells me that it's worth a conversation. I think it's worth thinking about, hey, maybe I should check out this Bible thing and see whether the claims that it makes actually has some substance. So at the CU, we do this thing called Mark Uncover. You can see it here on the table. It's just a section of the Bible, Mark's Gospel, and the tagline is Uncover, See for Yourself. So my challenge to you, if this is all new to you, is start a conversation. Come talk to me, talk to somebody with a CU shirt. Uh, Fill out your feedback form and say that you want to read the Bible with somebody. We will find somebody that you can just badger with questions until you're done. Uh, We would love to do that. Uh, Second, this is the second challenge and the thing that I'll finish on here, is conversion. That's a scary word, right? That sounds like a cult. You know, welcome to the Christian cult. But that's not actually what we're going on about when we talk about conversion. It's an aptly chosen phrase and word. Because to convert to something is to completely cut ties with the thing that you were once a part of. And that's what happens when you become a Christian. Not that you kind of like empty your bank account and you just cut off family ties and you move into some sort of weird house and you wear a robe. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about conversion. But what we are talking about is a complete severing of the life of sin and the life of selfishness and a turn to Jesus and a turn to worship the true God, your creator and ruler. Now, for some of you, this gospel message is not new. And so the challenge for you isn't conversation. The challenge for you is conversion. You know it. You understand it. You're familiar with it. It's in your head, but it hasn't made its way down to your heart. You haven't yet said before the holy God, I am actually sinful and I need you. And so my challenge to those of you who are in that category is this. Will you repent this Easter? Will you acknowledge that before God you were deserving of death, but because of God and his love, he gives you life? Because that is the Christian gospel. Jesus died, Jesus rose again, so that instead of suffering death, we receive 
life. And that is good news. That is worth more than two public holidays. That is worth an eternity of them, which happens to be what God offers. So if you want to take that opportunity, come find one of us after the service. We'd love to help you take that first step. Uh, Thank you, Matt. We all stand again. We're going to sing one more time.